Oh, grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus. It is a delight to be with you, first and foremost, because even though for many, many of you I'm, I'm meeting for the first time, um, there's something really special about our connection. Because of Jesus, we're family. You're my brothers and my sisters. And even though right now we're separated by geography, and by particular callings to be in a particular place and to serve among a particular people, one day there's gonna be a, a jaw-dropping family reunion when we're in the presence of God, when all the saints and brothers and sisters from all time are gathered in one place to be with Christ and one another forever. So I will endure separation from you for a little while, but one day we will get to do what we were just doing a few moments ago in God's presence forever together. And honestly, I hope that when we're there, we all have a New Englander accent because you guys are the best. You guys have an amazing accent. And I, I often get, I often get, uh, you know, where, you must be from, where are you from? Because, you know, I have a Philly accent, you know, and uh, I, I'm born and raised in Philadelphia, church planting in Philadelphia, multiple churches over the course of 20 years before the Lord led us out to California. Um, but I would, I would typically start off when I met a church for the first time, I'd get up there and I would just say, how you doing? And they do what you just do. They laugh. And I said, well, it's not, a, it's not a joke. It's a question. How are you doing? You're supposed to say, how are you doing? How are you doing? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, I just think it's just so interesting how we're, uh, we're, we're separated right now by time and space and geography and even culture and accents. But one day, there's going to be an unbelievable party to kick off eternity, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will just rejoice that we all get to be together. And one thing's gonna be very, very clear and very, very obvious, it's that Jesus made it all happen. Yes. Worthy is the lamb who was slain, right? So I'm grateful to be here to minister with you. I'm grateful for a number of reasons. I've said that we're family. Bowers already mentioned that we're a part of a, a denomination, a group of churches called Trinity Fellowship Churches. But I, even before that, I think Bauer, I've known you now for almost 20 years. Um, there were a number of times where my wife Rachel and I found ourselves in a lead pastor's retreat um, in Chatham, on the Cape, sitting down, pouring our hearts out to God with, to, with one another, receiving encouragement for ministry as pastors and pastor's wives together. And so we've, we've kind of been walking out life and ministry together in association for almost two decades now. And so it's, uh, I, I love being here because I love your pastors. I, I love Dave. I love Dan. And I've had some sweet opportunities to be with them and their spouses in various contexts. And now to be here on your own home turf, it's just a delight. It's just an absolute joy. And I could keep talking about that, but I really want to get to the purpose that we're here for tonight. And, and, and honestly, I'm amazed. It's Saturday night. You know, you, when churches choose to do stuff like this on Saturday night, I'm like, you guys are crazy and you're awesome. You love Jesus. Um, we're going to be together again tomorrow, but you want to be together again? To, you want to be together tonight? That just says something about what you value. It says something about what you treasure. And uh, it's, it's, it's an honor to be in the presence of that commitment and that loyalty to Jesus and his church. Um, I do want to invite you now to take your Bible and go to Psalm 63. But before we even get into the content of our two-part seminar tonight on the priority of pursuing God's presence. I believe as we were praying downstairs um, before our gathering tonight, I was praying with Bauer, praying with Dave, um, while the musicians were, were practicing up here. And, and as we were praying, I, I believe the Holy Spirit of God um, placed something upon my heart that I wanted to, to encourage you with 
um, for your edification and hopefully also for your, to, to renew your, your sense of understanding and purpose for why Crossway Church is right here smack dab in the middle of Franklin in this really needy, influential area of the United States. Um, maybe this will help um, kind of like lead into the word I believe the Lord's given to me. Uh, my kids have always been into superheroes because their dad has always kind of been into superheroes and I was always a big fan of Superman. And uh, for as long as I can remember, all of my, bo- my boys, for all throughout the duration of their childhood, they always had a set of Superman pajamas. And my favorite set of Superman pajamas were one that my son Silas had, probably when he was about three or four years old. It, was a, it had a glow-in-the-dark Superman emblem and a detachable Velcro cape. That was cool. See, I, I just saw eyes light up. They come with capes, you know? And so he had this set with this detachable Velcro cape, and he would, he would take the cape off at night before he went to bed, and he'd wake up, he'd often ask for his cape first thing. So I'm down in the living room, drinking a cup of coffee, reading my Bible, trying to commune with the Lord, and Silas comes down, he's all groggy, and the first words out of his mouth are, where's my cape? <laughs> and so get the cape, put it on his shoulders, and, and no sooner do we put the cape on his shoulders, it's like a transformation takes place. He went from like groggy, sleepy Silas to Superman. And then he did something that morning that he'd never done, pretending to be a superhero in his pajamas. He ran across the living room, jumped up onto the hearth of the fireplace, pulled back his fist and punched the brick wall. Let's just say that in a split second, he realized he wasn't the little man of steel. He was just Silas. Now he's all my, he's my life. He's like, oh, what's wrong? He's like, and you're thinking, why would he do that? He said, because as I'm getting to know you, Ian, he's your son. No, no. Um, he did that because in that moment, he really thought he was Superman. Now, isn't it true that we do what we do because we believe we are who we are? Identity drives our activity. We do what we do because we believe we are who we are. And I believe the Holy Spirit gave me a word to encourage you about who you are here in Franklin. Ephesians 2.22. In him, that's Jesus, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And I believe the Lord wanted to remind you, even before we, we get into teaching about pursuing the presence of God, that you, as the church, are the dwelling place of God. God is here, with you, among you, in Jesus, by the Spirit. And you know this, but let me remind you of this. Franklin needs to know that Jesus is here. And the good news is, Franklin's got Franklin has an advantage. They have an opportunity to know Jesus is here. Why? Because you are here. You are the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. And I believe the Lord wants you to be reminded, this is, this is part of your identity as the church of Jesus Christ. God is with you. God is among you. God is present. And he wants his presence to be known in Franklin through you individually, collectively, but especially as I was receiving this word from the Lord, I believe he wanted me to encourage you to think about this collectively. You are the dwelling place of God. 
and that there are people out there that need to know that God has not forsaken this world, that they are not alone, that life is hard, but he's here. Where? Here. With you, in you, among you. And I just want to encourage you to be who you are. Do what you do because you are who you are. You're the dwelling place of God. I hope that encourages you and builds you up to go more deeply, to go deeper into your awareness of who you are as the church. And so here on this Saturday night, I I want to take a few moments in these two sessions to bring two teachings that all kind of come together under one heading, the priority of pursuing God's presence. And I want to talk about it in two, in, two, in two different categories. I want to talk about it first in terms of pursuing God's presence intimately, that you, as an individual follower of Jesus Christ, have an unbelievable privilege to commune with the triune God. And then I also want to take some time in, in, in the second part of my teaching to encourage you to recognize that what's true about you individually is also true about you collectively, that together, as the church, when you gather, you have the unbelievable privilege of pursuing and encountering the presence of God. That, that, that as, as Dan was saying when we were worshiping, we don't have to wait for heaven to experience his presence. Right. Belinda Carlisle wasn't completely wrong. Heaven is a place on earth. <laughs> you know that song. Heaven is a place that can be experienced on earth as we encounter the triune God as the people of God. And so I want to encourage us in these two directions. And I'm, I'm just up front. I don't like mysterious preaching. Where's this all going? Here, here's what I'm hoping for. That you be renewed this, this evening in your faith that God wants you to encounter him individually, collectively. And this text wasn't in my sermon, not in my notes, but Dave prayed it downstairs a little bit ago. James 4, verse 7, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Profound. We can encounter as much of his presence as we choose to, because as we pursue him, he draws near to us. That's amazing. So I'm I'm hoping that that's what's stirred in us tonight as we take time to hear from God on this topic. Psalm 63, let us hear the word of God. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Oh God, You are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night for you have been my help. 
And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. As God's word may add his blessing to his reading and preaching by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. C.S. Lewis famously wrote that if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Everyone, everyone in the world is looking for satisfaction. It's what you're looking for. It's what I'm looking for. It's what your neighbors are looking for. Everyone in this world is looking for satisfaction, so they pursue it. We pursue it in people, in relationships, in experiences, in vocations, in possessions, only to find out that Mick Jagger was right. I can't get no satisfaction. But we try, and we try, and we try, but nothing seems to deliver exactly what the human soul is after. So what's it mean? What's it mean when nothing in this world gives us what our souls are desperately looking for? Well, Lewis argues, and I agree, that the most probable answer is that we were made to find our ultimate satisfaction out of this world. On the other side of our frustrated pursuit to find satisfaction, what's supposed to click is something like this. If nothing in this world brings me ultimate satisfaction, then that must mean only something out of this world will do it. Charles Spurgeon, the the great 19th century pastor, said very famously, there is a God-shaped void in every soul that can only be filled by him. That's the teaching of scripture, that we were made with a God-shaped void that only he can fill. Or to say it another way, only communion with the triune God will satisfy the human soul. We were made to find our ultimate delight through and in intimacy with God. Only communion with the triune God will satisfy the human soul. And that, my friends, is Psalm 63. This is a song about finding what every human soul is looking for. This is a song about finding satisfaction after looking for it in the wrong places, finally finding it where it can only be found. And so the verses of this song reveal that ultimate satisfaction is not found in anyone or anything in this world. Ultimate satisfaction can only be found in the one who created the world. And so David writes the song rejoicing that he's found it. Verse five, my soul is satisfied. And the reason why David writes this psalm 
The reason why David writes the song is because he wants all of Israel to be able to sing it. He wants all of God's people throughout all time to be able to sing it. My soul is satisfied. David found it. He sang about it. He wants you to find it and sing about it. Isn't that what you want? Don't you want to be able to say that? My soul is satisfied. I might not have everything I want, but I certainly have everything I need, and I definitely have that which ultimately gives me what my soul was made to crave. I have God. So that's what this song is about, getting to that sweet spot, getting to that destination that every human soul is longing to get to, that place where we can say, my soul is satisfied. So how do we get there? How do we get to that destination? It's one thing to acknowledge. That's where I want to go. That's where I find it. But how do we get there? What's the pathway? And so that's what I want to draw out from the psalm tonight. uh, That pathway to the satisfied soul. that, That pathway to the satisfied soul. Soul. So, so it's my aim in this session to, to take us down that path together. And so let's, let's look at the markers on the way to this destination. And I'm, again, I, I don't like to be a, a mysterious, where's this all going kind of a preacher. Like, so let me give you the points on the, to, to that destination um, so you know how I'm going to deal with it in the text. So what, there's this pathway to a satisfied soul. Here's how we get there. It begins with owning God personally. It continues with desiring God desperately. It moves on to pursuing God deliberately, then enjoying God deeply, and then finally celebrating God worshipfully. So here are the points. First, Our movement toward a satisfied soul begins with owning God personally. Look at verse 1. Oh, God, you are my God. Oh, God, you are mine. Literally, Elohim, you are my Elohim. Elohim is the name for God that takes us to the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. It's it's the name for God that identifies him as the creator and the sustainer of the universe. Everything that we see in front of us has been caused and triggered and brought into existence from Elohim. Elohim speaks the world into existence and then he holds it together by the word of his power. So Elohim is responsible for everything we see, everything we experience, Everything we know in the material cosmos, big, complex, amazing Elohim. Well, right there in the very first chapter of the Bible, we find out that this Elohim is even more complex than meets the eye. This this Elohim says, on the last day of creation, let us make man in our image. What? This begins that majestic trail of evidence throughout scripture revealing God is triune. That God is one and exists in three distinct persons. One God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And and so the triune God has known and enjoyed communion within the, the Elohim triune Godhead for all eternity. 
And as we read our Bible, we realize that the, 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 the God of the Trinity knows and enjoys the persons of the Trinity perfectly and entirely and has been forever. The Father in perfect communion with the Son and the Spirit. The Son in perfect communion with the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit in perfect communion with the Son and the Father. All enjoying this blessed communion within the blessed Trinity. Mind-blowing. And then... That triune God decides in, the, in this holy huddle of the Holy Trinity to create man and woman in their image. And there's so many mind-blowing implications of what it means to be made in the image of the triune God. But one of them is invitation into that communion. Man and woman created in the image of God are invited to experience the holy communion that the Holy Trinity has been experiencing within the Godhead for all eternity. I just want this to give you a little bit of a Charlie horse on the brain. Mind-blowing. Amazing. Being made in the image of God means that human beings can commune with God as God communes with God within the Trinity. Oh God, you are my God. And so from this language, from, from there in the opening chapters of Genesis, this language of relationship and communion and intimacy is used to describe the way the triune God relates to his covenant people and the way God's people are, are, are privileged to, to, to interact and relate to God. And so it's amazing as you begin to read your Bible this way with, with communion, with intimacy in view, you begin to see, oh yeah, from the very, very beginning, there's this unique, interactive, intimate relationship between God and his people. Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve walking with God in the cool of the day, walking with God. You walked into this building, most of you with somebody. You walk with the people you are in intimate relationship with. You walked out of your house. You walked into your car. You drove your car. You got who, the person that you're with, that you're walking with, that's, that's someone that you have intimate communion and relationship with. And this is the language that's being used to describe the way God relates to his created people. He walks with them. And you can trace this language throughout the Old Testament. Noah walks with God in Genesis 6, 6, 9. Abraham walks with God in Genesis chapter 12. And in fact, in Genesis chapter 12, we, we find that God talks directly to Abraham. And the Lord said to Abraham, you say, those, are, those seem like small, inconsequential words. No, it's an amazing reality. God said to Abraham, God created Abraham with ears. And one of the reasons why God created Abraham with ears is so that he could hear with his ears the voice of God. Amazing. Isaac enjoys that communion with God. Genesis 25, where Isaac is praying to the Lord for his wife. She's barren. And there's this promise that they're supposed to have kids that, that, and their descendants are supposed to outnumber the sand of the seashore and the stars in the sky. And they just like my father, I'm not even have, able to have a child either. What's, what's going on? It took forever for me to get here. Is it going to take forever for the next one to get here? And so he prays, my wife is barren. God, what's going on? And the Lord hears him, we're told. The Lord heard the prayer of Isaac. You say, why are you bringing this out? That's amazing. Isaac does not see God with his eyeballs, but he speaks 
into the heavens. And we're told that God is listening. It's intimacy. That's engagement. That's relationship. Jacob enjoys communion with God. Genesis 28, behold, I am with you. And I will keep you wherever you go. In other words, Jacob does not see God all the time with his eyeballs. He appears in unique ways at unique times. He even gets into a wrestling match with God. But nonetheless, even though he cannot see him, God says, I am with you wherever you go. So this intimacy with God, this, this engagement with God, this, this communion with God is not simply based upon what we see with our eyes or hear with our ears, that there is a, there is a mystical, mysterious presence of God with his people, whether we see him with our eyes or not. Joseph enjoys this communion with God in Genesis 39. The Lord was with Joseph. Moses enjoyed this communion with God. Exodus 33, verse 11. This one, I love this. The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. The man speaks to a friend. Here's my point. My point is this. The Bible is clear that human beings were made to engage with God. The human beings were made in the image of God to experience communion with God. And so when David says, Oh God, you are my God. He's using language that picks up on this, that pulls on this thread that you see all throughout the scriptures. That God, God has designed us. God has created us. God has made us to be with him, to experience him. One of my favorite ways that this is described under the old covenant is Leviticus 26 verse 12. And we find this repeated in different places and in different ways. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. I'm with you. Never going to leave you. You're mine. I'm yours. So with all the freight of that reality, with all the freight of that creative design, with all the freight of those covenant promises, hear that, 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 that freight coming and moving and bringing the momentum that moves David to say, not these, just, these, these pithy words uh, of emptiness, but this, this rock-solid declaration of intimacy. Oh God, you are my God. To the God who says, I will be your God and you will be my people, David says, you are my God and I am your people. So all of that his theology and history is packed into this opening line of the psalm. David is acknowledging that he is in covenant communion with the triune God. And here's the point for us. We also stand in this stream of, of history and covenant theology that in Jesus Christ, we can say with David, oh God, you are my God. Because we too stand in line with all those who've been created in the image of God, built with the, with the capacity to commune with God. And even though in our sin, we've been separated from God, now in Jesus Christ, we have been reunited to God so that we can commune with God in heaven while we're on earth. 
And the only reason we can own God as our God is because God the Father in his mercy first chose to own us as his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. This declaration can be our declaration by grace through faith in Jesus. We can enjoy communion with God because God has pursued communion with us. That the Father sent Jesus from heaven to earth in the power of the Holy Spirit for what? To suffer once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us where? To God, 1 Peter 3, 15. So we can sing this song with David. This is not just David's song. This is our song. We can say, oh God, you are my God, because on the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's amazing. So that's a little bit of a biblical theological detour <laughs> to help us understand the significance of this opening phrase of the song that begins this pathway to a satisfied soul. We truly can say with David, my soul is satisfied because in the creative and redemptive plan of God, we, were, we have been made and saved to know him, encounter him, experience him, talk to him, hear from him, walk with him, be with him now and forever. That's gospel. So it's through the cross and resurrection of the Son of God that we can sing this song. This song is for us. Oh God, you are my God. So this, this pathway to a satisfied soul begins with owning God personally. And it continues. Second, with desiring God desperately. Notice the way David describes his desire for God in verse one, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. So, so first David says his desire for God, his desire for intimacy with God is like a thirst. So, so what do we most frequently thirst for? The answer is not coffee. It's water. And what do we know about water? We can't live without it. Right? We cannot live without water. In short, if you do not have water, you will die. You will die. I still remember the first time um, when one of our little kids was, had, had a cold and was, and was really sick and just would not stop crying and crying and crying and crying and crying and crying and crying. We're like, oh my word, what is going on here? So we rushed him to the, we rushed him to the ER and, and the doctor just said to us, he's dehydrated. And so they popped an IV into him and the little wristband on his, on, his, on his wrist went from being all like kind of like floppy to like pressing up against the ceiling. Like, wow, he really needed a lot more water than he was getting. And he was crying because his body was saying, I, I, I don't work without water. I don't work without liquid. I need hydration. Lessons learned. We didn't kill him, praise God. Uh, right? We can't live without water. And so by saying he thirsts for God, here's what he's saying. God, I can't live without you. I've got to have you. I've got to get to you. 
Because if I don't, I will die. The psalmist feels dry without God. He feels weak without God. There's some parallelism here. My, my, my flesh faints for you. It's like saying my body's hungry for you. Whether it's a th- thirst or a hunger, the, the idea is this. If I don't have you, if I don't have you, I'm doomed. He's desperate. So, so what this means is his desire for God begins as a desire of desperation. I'm in a dry and weary land where there is no water, If I don't have you, I will shrivel up and die. Is that how you feel about God? Are you desperate for him? Do you thirst for him because you know that you are dry and incapable of existing without him? Do you hunger for him because you know that you are weak without him? Is he, do you see him as your sustenance? Jesus drives this home in at least two of his I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am living water. There are so many implications of what Jesus says in saying that that's what he is, but at the end of the day, he's saying you can't You can't go on without me. You can't live without me. You were made to need me. And so I'm your water. I'm your bread. Hunger and thirst for me. So it's interesting how in in our in our romantic ideal of what it means to pursue intimacy with God, we, we think that first and foremost, our, our drive to pursue God and to enjoy intimacy with him should start with desire. I really want this. No, it begins with, I really need this. Our desire for God begins with desperation for God. We can't live without him. Just like the body cannot continue and exist and flourish without food or water, we in our soul cannot exist, continue, and flourish and survive without God's presence. So what does this lead to? This, this desire, this desperation leads to the third point on this, this, on this pathway, pursuing God deliberately. David says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. He's saying, because I own you as my God, because I desire you as the one I desperately need, I'm coming after you, God. I'm going to seek you. I'm going to pursue you. I need to be with you. So there's there's nothing casual about this pursuit It's earnest. He says, earnestly I seek you. This is all one word in the Hebrew. It means to go after something deliberately with intensity. Uh, Bauer already mentioned in, in, in introducing me that I'm a big Philadelphia sports fan, but I actually come from just a big sports family. I'm, I'm, I'm a big guy. I have five brothers. We're big guys. We grew up playing football 
and basketball, and I couldn't wait to pass that on to my kids. And so when our boys started playing football, um, I volunteered to be a part of the coaching staff for our neighborhood football team. And, and, and I still remember one summer in particular, uh, training camp would start in August, and it's not much different in Philly as it is here in Franklin. Is that in August, it's still really hot and super humid. One of the nice things about California, there's no humidity. I love it. No stickiness from the heat. But that wasn't the case in those hot summer months when football season was starting. And I still remember the kids going out, and I was part of the coaching staff. I wasn't the head coach, and the head coach would be leading the kids through their calisthenics and leading them through their drills. And, man, they would just be out there, full pads, helmets, sweaty, sweaty, sweaty. And then as soon as the, as soon as the coach would blow the whistle and say, water, let me tell you something. There was nothing casual about their pursuit of the water on the sideline. I mean, they flipped off their helmets, ran to the sideline, grabbed the water bottles, and just doused themselves. They, they sprinted for that water. That's David. He owns God as his God. He's desperate for him, and there's nothing casual about his pursuit. He, he sprints to God. He seeks him earnestly. He's got to get to God, because if he doesn't have him... So when we realize how much we need him, we will sprint to get to him. When we wake up in the morning, where do you sprint? When your day begins... Where do you go first? When you're feeling desperate, what do you run to? When David felt desperate, when he felt needy, he had to get to God. He had to get to God. When I, and, and let me just tell you this. When you wake up in the morning, it can be a dual sprint. You can sprint to the coffee pot and to the throne, okay? You can do both. Okay, in fact, that's been my practice for a long time. I wake up in the morning, I swing my legs over the side of the bed, I pray the Lord's Prayer, and then I get to the coffee pot, and I start listening to Scripture, right? Those things can happen together. Caffeine and God's presence, I mean, it's a beautiful mixture. Um, yeah, amen. Um, but the point is, in your heart, what do you wake up aware of? And what do you do about it? Do you, do you run to him in your heart? You say, how do you do that? Like, do you, like, you don't literally physically sprint to God. Even though this language communicates this intensity and movement. Well, here's how he did it. Verse 2, I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. This is how David pursued God. This is how David sprinted to God. And David's experience, the way he sprinted after God was by putting himself in the place where he could see and behold God's power and glory. David pursued God in the sanctuary here in verse 2, which would have been the place of gathered worship for Israel at that time. And there he saw God's power and God's glory. Power referencing God's mighty acts. Glory referencing God's awesome character. But notice that David pursues glimpses of God's power and glory, not only in public sacred spaces like the sanctuary. Did you notice in verse 6 that David's laying on his bed, meditating on God in the watches of the night? 
And so here's, here's what I think the point is. When we, the way that we sprint after God, where we go to get to God, is that whether it's in private or in public, we got to get the, 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 the eye of our mind, the eye of our heart in a place where we can see and behold who God is and what he has done and what he can do. His power and his glory. Whether it's in the sanctuary, the sacred space, or in my home, in the most private space, my bedroom, wherever I am, in in a public place or a private space or anywhere in between, when I feel my need for God, when I feel desperate for God, I got to get my mind's eye, I got to get my heart to a place where I behold his power and his glory. So where do we take our hearts to behold his power and his glory? Well, this would be a side sermon here, but there's three places. His word, his world, and his works. We see his power and glory in his word. He's revealed himself to us through the pages of scripture. We see his power and glory in the world. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. We see his work in the, we see his, we see his power and his glory in his works, his providence, his hand that's at work in our midst through his kindness and his care and his provision and his protection and the way that he's working through his people. And so the way that we behold him, the way that we seek him is through his word and through his world and through his works. And so the way we deliberately seek after God is by positioning ourselves to see his power and glory, both in public and in private, in his world, in his works, and in his word. So when we own him personally and we desire him desperately, it leads to pursuing him deliberately. And when we do, we then enjoy God deeply. This comes up a number of places in the psalm. Verse 3, your steadfast love is better than life. Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Look at verse 11, the king shall rejoice in God. So, so here's, the, here's, the, here's the way this kind of flows. Owning God leads to desiring God. Desiring God leads to pursuing God. And pursuing God leads to enjoying God. That's the pathway to a satisfied soul. When we own him and we desire him and we pursue him, it leads to enjoying him. Like David says in verse three, we find that that being the object of God's never ending, never stopping forever love is better than anything in this life. To be loved by him, to be cherished by him, to to be affirmed by him, to be owned by him is better than anything this life has to offer. That's what David says. When you, when you go after him and you see him and you experience him, you realize there's nothing better than this. I often say this. I, I disciple college students for a long time before I started church planting. And one of the top things I would talk to Christian, uh, Christian college students about was cultivating good habits of pursuing intimacy with God. And they would say, well, I don't have time. I have to study and I have to work. And I, I said, let me ask you this. Have you ever, ever in your life as a Christian taken 15 minutes out of your day to pursue intimacy with God and then afterwards say, I wish I had done something else? The answer is never. Do we ever come out of prayer and say, oh, I wish I would have spent less time in prayer? Do we ever come out of a time beholding God's power and glory in the word and say, you know, what? I probably could have used my time better. 
right? We, we know. Here's what we say. We say what David says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. There's nothing better than being with God. There's, there's nothing better than seeing him and enjoying him and hearing from him and engaging with him. We enjoy it. Like David says in verse 5, when we pursue him, we will find that God satisfies our souls like a really good, like a really good food satisfies our stomachs. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. This word fat's a great word. It's that, it's that, it's that marbly part of the ribeye. Exactly. Mm. You know what's the best thing to do with a ribeye? Don't just eat it as a ribeye. You take that baby and you slice it up really thin. You cook it with fried onions. You put it on a nice Italian roll with some cheese and you call it a cheesesteak. Right. And we've, we've perfected the art of cheesesteak making in, in the city of brotherly love. And, uh, and so David's basically saying, like, when I pursue him and I spend time beholding his power and his glory and in public with God's people or in private and in, in intimacy, here's what I think about. I think this is better than the best steak. This is better than a cheesesteak. This is amazing. And like David says in verse 11, when we pursue him, we find that there is more joy in God himself than in the best possible circumstances. You, you, you may have noticed that there's some dicey language at the end of this psalm that doesn't even seem to fit. Like, okay, what's going on here? Right, think about this. David's satisfaction What's, what's, what's being drawn out at the end of the psalm is that David's satisfaction was not found in ideal circumstances. David's satisfaction was found in having God regardless of the circumstances. Because you might be tempted to think, well, it's easy for David to say he's satisfied. He's the king of Israel. He had tons of money, killer palace, loyal subjects, hundreds of servants ready to do whatever he wants. I mean, it's easy to say I'm satisfied when you're living the Israeli dream, right? But you know what? If that were David's circumstances when he's writing the psalm, we might be able to give him a little pushback and say, come on, David, you're speaking hyperbole. But that wasn't David's circumstances. You may have noticed the superscription of the psalm that I read, the psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. See, David, when David writes this song, he isn't in the comforts of his palace. He's in the desert. You may have noticed that dicey language I refer to, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. I can't read that last phrase, a portion for jackals, without seeing the hyenas from the Lion King. He's like, people are seeking to kill me. My soul is satisfied. You see, David was in the wilderness because there were people seeking to destroy his life. And he knew who was leading the charge. It was his son, Absalom. This story is told in 2 Samuel chapter 13 how Absalom, his very own son, played, play, planned a secret revolt to steal the throne from his father and to establish his own kingdom and be crowned as the new king. And so David's advisors catch word of this coup right before it goes down and they flee for their lives in the desert. And it's there 
in the desert, having lost his throne, having lost his palace, having lost his money, having lost his subjects, and having lost his son in this twisted act of betrayal, that he says, your loving kindness is better than life. My soul is satisfied. The king rejoices in God. What's the point in context of this entire song? It's this. Very often, you don't realize that God and God alone satisfies the soul until God and God alone is all you have. It's when we lose in life. It's when we hurt in life that we realize that Jesus is better than life. Satisfaction is not found in ideal circumstances. A satisfied soul is found in having God regardless of our circumstances. To quote Spurgeon again, you will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything else. You will never know the satisfaction of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything else. David lost it all, but he still felt like he had it all because he didn't lose God. And isn't that what we're looking for? A love that lasts, a joy that doesn't fade, a delight that endures, a satisfaction and contentment that's not based on all the ups and downs of life. Where do we find that? In the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In the God who never changes. Only in him do we find an incorruptible contentment. Notice finally that the satisfaction isn't where the pathway ends. The pathway doesn't simply end on us getting what we want. A satisfied soul leads to God getting what he deserves. And that's the final point in this pathway, a celebrating God worshipfully. David's satisfaction in God overflows into celebration and worship. Verse three, because your love and kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. Verse four, so I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up your name. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Verse five, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Verse seven, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. See, here's how God designs it. When we pursue him, and we go after him, and we experience him. We get what we desire, and God gets what he deserves. A satisfied soul and a glorified God. We are satisfied, and God is glorified, or to put it like John Piper says it, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. So when we go after God, we find in him what our souls deeply crave. And then on the other side of that satisfaction, we celebrate the God who alone can give it. The fervency of your worship is directly connected to your enjoyment of God. We make much of the things that bring us joy, don't we? When we enjoy a good meal, we compliment the cook. When we enjoy a good music piece, we, we clap our hands. 
We cheer for the players in the field that hit the game-winning home run or scored the game-winning touchdown, like the Phillies and the Eagles. We naturally praise what brings us pleasure. So when God delights our souls, we sing, we shout, we express our praise. But that's not all. There's also another part of this as well. This pathway to a satisfied soul not only overflows with celebrating God worshipfully, there's actually one more point on this pathway. It's sharing God missionally. Right? When we really enjoy something, we can't keep it to ourselves. When we have a good meal, we say, hey, you got to go to that restaurant and try that dish. When we hear a good song, hey, have you heard this song? It's amazing. Let me share it with you. And that's exactly what David's doing in this psalm. He has found that God and God alone can satisfy his soul, and he can't keep it to himself. So what's he do? He writes this psalm. This psalm, its existence, its placement in the Psalter is proof that when God satisfies our souls, we can't help but share it. And I'm convinced that there are people all around Franklin, your neighbors, your coworkers, people that you experience life with, who like that quote from C.S. Lewis, they have found that nothing in this world can quite do it for them. And they're right. And here's what they need to know, that only communion with the triune God can satisfy the human soul. You know it, and when you experience it, by God's grace, you will share it. Amen? So only communion with the triune God can satisfy your soul. So get on that pathway. Own him day by day. Own him personally. Desire him desperately. Pursue him deliberately. Enjoy him deeply. Celebrate him worshipfully and then share him missionally. Let's pray. God, thanks for this word from your word. Thanks for this psalm. Thank you that with David, we are graciously reminded that we have offered to us, not only by creative design, but also by redemption in Christ Jesus, the most unbelievable privilege known on this earth, and that is to be in relationship with you, to be with you, to hear from you, to speak to you, to experience intimacy in your very presence. Would you use this psalm as fuel for our souls to believe with renewed faith that you invite us to know you, pursue you, enjoy you, celebrate you, and share you with our world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take a brief 10-minute uh, break, but just a closing uh, thought. And uh, thank you, Ian. I don't want to add or distract, but... <clears throat> to hear you remind us um, uh, that, um, that David was in the wilderness where he wrote this psalm only to discover that God was with him in the wilderness to 
satisfy him. Just struck by how in our gospel account, Jesus provided rest for his disciples in the desolate place with his presence. And so for those on the stream and for those here tonight, um, I just want to pray, if I'm prompted to pray, uh, not only would we apply that, but that God would give us open our eyes just a little wider to see it's in the desolate place that he is present to write this psalm more largely. So Lord, we just desire to commune with you in those desolate spaces, whatever that means, because we discover in those spaces and places that you are present, Jesus. You are present to, to lead us in on the pathway to find our, our satisfaction in you. So as we take a break, Lord, where we may be discouraged by those desolate spaces, those wilderness moments, Lord, remind us of your mercy and grace. You are both with us and eager to refresh us as this psalm becomes living, living words to us. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. All right, we'll take a 10-minute break, and I'll, I'll invite you back in about 10. <laughs>